Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Jess and uh, worship team for leading us today. It's, uh, it's kind of nice sometimes to do things a little differently. And uh, I think it's always easy to kind of get into a routine and a regularity of doing things one way. And it's kind of nice to do things in a little different way. Uh, and we've been able to experience that today and just recognize that there's, you know, different ways to worship, uh, not only through our singing, but also through just uh, praying together and uh, sharing together and those kind of things. I want to invite you to take your Bible and uh, if you don't have it open yet, to uh, open it up to Romans 12. Uh, we are going to be, begin looking at verses 9 to 13 today. Uh, Lord willing, we'll uh, look at uh, a couple of those verses today and the rest of those verses next Sunday morning, uh, if God allows us to do that. We're going to begin this morning with, uh, with a question. And uh, initially, you might think, well, that, that's kind of a kind of an odd question. Maybe even you might think that's kind of a, a morbid question, but, but I want you to sort of hang in there with me for a moment, all right? Because there's a, a kind of a method or a thought behind the question. But, but the question is simply this. If you knew you were about to die, what would you talk about? I mean, just think about that for a moment. If, if for some reason you knew that uh, maybe because of terminal illness or some other reason that uh, that this was going to be the end of your life, and that it was going to end today or tomorrow within just a few days, um, what would you talk about? What would you talk about to the people that are closest to you? I have to imagine that we probably wouldn't spend a lot of time talking about the weather, uh, probably wouldn't spend a lot of time talking about the NFL preseason, uh, probably wouldn't spend a lot of time talking about a lot of those kind of things. Now, I think if we knew that we were about to die, we'd probably tell the people closest to us the things that are, are really most important to us. Not the trivial things, not the incidental things, but the most important things. It's kind of interesting that on the night before Jesus died, and he knew he was going to die, um, he, uh, he did exactly that. He spent time with the people that were closest to him, and he spent time talking with them about things that are most important. And in John chapter 13, verse 34, after Jesus had finished washing his disciples' feet, he said this to them. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 13, 34. Now, given the, the situation, given the circumstances, you, you might think that Jesus would talk to his disciples about strategy, right? I mean, after all, he's going to be crucified the next day, the next morning, 
And then shortly thereafter, he's going to rise again and eventually ascend back to heaven. And these followers, these disciples, are going to be responsible for launching this new thing called the church. So you might think that what Jesus would talk to his followers about would be some kind of, trage- some kind of strategy, some kind of church strategy, those kind of things, but he doesn't. Or you might think that he would talk to them about some important areas of, of belief or doctrine. I mean, after all, the crucifixion's coming the next day, and then his resurrection. These are essential, critical, doctrinal areas. You'd think he'd maybe spend some time explaining that, walking through that, so they really understand that. But you know, he didn't do that. He didn't talk to them about strategy, didn't talk to them about doctrine. No, he talks to them about how they should treat each other. He directs them to love each other as he has loved them. If you read through the Gospels, you know that Jesus loved his disciples unconditionally, that he loved his disciples sacrificially. He loved them openly. He loved them when it wasn't easy. He loved them when it wasn't convenient. He loved them in all those ways. And in some of his final words to them, he called them, he invited them to love each other in the same way that he loved them, to mimic that love in their relationships with each other. You might ask, why? Why would he do that? Why would, be, why would that be some of his final words? Why would that be so important on his heart, knowing that he was going to, to die the next morning? Well, we, we come to realize why in the very next verse. Because in verse 35 of John 13, Jesus went on to say, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, as Jesus looked at his closest uh, followers, he said to them that the greatest apologetic that we can have, the greatest way that we can show people why we believe what we believe is in followers of Christ having Christ-like love for each other, loving each other unconditionally, sacrificially, openly, and inconveniently. That was what was on Christ's heart. That was what was most important to him. Then it's kind of interesting, just a few hours later, uh, now we're even closer to the the end of his life, almost closer to, to his crucifixion. Now Jesus is having another conversation, only this time it's not with his followers. He's having a conversation in the Garden of Gethsemane with his father. And once again, they're not going to talk about the weather, right? Not going to talk about sports, not going to talk about things that are trivial. Going to talk about serious things, important things. And listen to what Jesus prays. In John 17, verse 20, he says this, I do not ask for these only. In other words, God the Father, I'm not just asking for the followers I have right now. He says, but I also ask for those who will believe in me through their word. And here's what he asks for, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. So here on the the very last night before Jesus is going to be crucified, the very last night before he's going to die, he gives his followers a new commandment, and he prays for one specific thing. He tells his followers, followers to love each other radically, and he prays to God the Father that 
God would work in their relationships so that they might experience deep unity, the same kind of unity that he has with the Father in their relationships with each other. And he does all this because, again, that is the greatest testimony that we can have. That is our greatest apologetic. That is the greatest means that we have to let people know why it is that we believe what we believe. It's like Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my followers if you have love for one another. Or we're to have that unity so that the world may believe why God the Father sent the Son into the world. Jesus knew that the most powerful means of authentically communicating the gospel in this fallen world would be the way that we relate to each other and the relationships that we have with each other. And whether it's loving each other as Christ loves us or whether it's, it's developing relationships that really express deep unity, you know, today we would put those things together and we would call all of that experiencing genuine community experiencing genuine community. That's what Christ directed us to have. That's what Christ's desire was for us to have, is to experience that genuine community. But it's kind of unfortunate that I think for a lot of followers of Christ, perhaps myself included, we don't always experience genuine biblical community. We'd like to. We know it's God's desire. We know it's his directive for our lives. But we don't always experience that. And there's no absolute guarantee that we will. Even if we're part of a church family, even if we're part of a small group, it's not just like automatic. It just doesn't come. No, there's some things that are involved in it. It takes some things to do that. So what I'd like us to do this morning and next Sunday morning, Lord willing, is look at these five verses in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13, because I think in these five verses, we really come to understand what is needed for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ to experience genuine biblical community. In Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13, God explains exactly what is required for that genuine community to happen. And the outline for these verses, it actually is a a pretty simple outline. It's a pretty straightforward outline, and it goes something like this. Genuine community occurs when the real me, verse 9, meets real needs, verse 10, For the right reason, verse 11, and in the right way, verses 12 to 13. It's not a difficult outline, not a hard one to understand. It's really pretty straightforward. Again, let's just, uh, let me read you these verses before we jump into them. Verse 9 of Romans chapter 12 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Genuine community occurs when the real me meets real needs in the right, for the right reason and in the right way. So let's just sort of launch into that outline, and let's look at two parts of that this morning. So what is necessary for the real me to show up? What is necessary for the real me to show up? Well, according to verse 9, we're told that there are basically two qualities, two ingredients, two prerequisites, we might call them, if the real me is going to show up. And those two requirements, those two qualities are authenticity and purity. 
authenticity and purity. Now, if, if the real me is going to show up, then that means the authentic me needs to show up. Paul writes in this text, let love be genuine. The word there, genuine, speaks of love being without hypocrisy. In fact, the, the word literally means, or literally is the word for without a mask. So he's basically saying, let our love that we share with each other be a love that is without a mask. We need to be authentic in our relationships with each other. And when Paul said this, and he wrote this in Romans 12, the, the believers at Rome, they would have understood exactly what, they, what he was talking about because they were very familiar with the theater of the day. And in the theater of the day, there were only male actors. Women were not allowed, were not allowed to be actors in, in the theater of the day. And so men would be required in any dramatic production to fill the role of a, of a man or maybe a woman or maybe a child or maybe actually multiple different characters in the drama. And the way that they would do that is they would simply change masks. So when they were portraying the role of a child, they would put on the mask of a child. When they were portraying the role of a woman, they would put on the mask of a woman. And so they would just wear the mask to sort of, sort of uh, uh, become the character that they were trying to portray. And what Paul's saying here in this text is that when it comes to authentic community, that we need to remove the mask. Let's quit trying to portray something that we really aren't. Let's stop being something, or let's stop trying to be something that we're really not. And so there's this whole idea of being authentic and being genuine. You know, that's not an easy thing to do, because in any kind of relationships, if we take off the mask, if we sort of set aside the hypocrisy, if we really commit ourselves to being genuine, I mean, there are, uh, there are some risks with that, Right? That's not an easy thing to do. And the possibility of rejection in there, and the possibility of betrayal is there, and the possibility of, of judgment is there. But you know, that's the price tag for genuine community. It's a willingness to risk rejection by being honest and authentic in relationships. And that allows us to experience that genuine community as other followers of Christ love me, love the real me, love the real me in spite of all my faults, the real me in spite of all my struggles, the real me in spite of all of, of my baggage. You know, in the early church, I mean, God put a very, very high value on his people living uh, authentic lives and not being hypocrites and not, not putting on masks. In fact, uh, God put such a high value on authenticity in the early church that he chose to actually judge the very first sin, hypocrisy, recorded in the early church with a a severity that's kind of, a, kind of hard to get our arms around. I mean, you know the situation. In, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and several thousand people came to faith in Christ that day. And as you read through the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Acts, we're seeing that literally hundreds, thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ every day. And as they were coming to faith in Christ, these people had a lot of needs. Some of them were coming out of very uh, difficult situations. Others, when they came to Christ, they were being now uh, uh, ostracized by their families. They were, in some cases, losing their jobs. So suddenly, they were without a lot of resources. And so we, we read in those early chapters of Acts that the body of Christ came together, and they were sharing all that they had. And in Acts chapter 4, there's a story of one particular individual by the name of Barnabas, who had a, a piece of property on the island of Cyprus out in the Mediterranean. And, he took, and he, he took that piece of property and he sold it. 
And he brought all the proceeds, the entire sale price, to the apostles and laid it at their feet and said, use this money, use these resources to meet the needs of God's people. Well, you can imagine somebody giving a gift that large, I mean, selling an island property like that out in the Mediterranean, that that would have been uh, something that uh, many people would have looked up to. And they would have thought very highly of Barnabas for doing that. Well, there was a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, and they saw what Barnabas had done. They said, you know, we'd like that same kind of uh, credit. We'd like people looking at us the same way they looked at Barnabas, but we're not really willing to make the same kind of sacrifice that Barnabas made. And so they too had a piece of property and they sold it. And they brought the proceeds of that property, the apostles, and said, here are all the proceeds of the property that we sold and we're giving it to you. But the problem is they were wearing masks. The problem is they were being hypocrites. The problem is they weren't being authentic because it is true that they sold the property. But when they said they were bringing the whole proceeds of the property of the sale to the apostles, they weren't. They were only bringing a part of those proceeds. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, we read these words. It says, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Well, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And then verse 5 tells us, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now, folks, that was all because of hypocrisy. That was all because Ananias was wearing a mask. It was all because Ananias wasn't authentic, and God took that very seriously. And you go down a couple of more verses, down to verse 8 of Acts chapter 5. Now, Sapphira, his wife, comes into the room, and Peter said to her, verse 8, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon her the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. I mean, just just think about that for a moment. I mean, that strikes as being a a bit severe, right? I mean, it was only a little hypocritical, right? They were just kind of worried. I mean, it wasn't that big of a deal, but God thought it was a big deal. And imagine the impact that that had. And it's as if God was saying to his church, there is no room for hypocrisy in the church. There should be no wearing of masks in this new community called my family, my body, the church. Authenticity must be the hallmark of my followers. We are to love each other without wearing masks. We're to love each other without hypocrisy. We're to be authentic. Now, folks, that doesn't mean that uh, in every conversation we have with every person that we're to share everything with everyone. But it does mean that I have to be authentic about the truth that I have struggles about the truth that I, have, that I have heartaches, about the truth that I have pains and failures and, and foibles and, and those kind of things in my life. I need to be authentic about those things. Paul's saying that genuine community will never occur unless we're willing to show up as the real person that we are, unless the real me shows up. And for the real me to show up, there needs to be authenticity. 
There needs to be authenticity. But you know, authenticity is just one part of the equation. The text goes on to say, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So not only do we, for the real me to show up, does there need to be authenticity, there also needs to be purity. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And I think we all recognize that the roots of hypocrisy really go beyond just a desire to make a good impression. That uh, at least in my own life, a lot of the mask wearing is because, you know, I, I really don't want people to know about some of the things that are going on in my life. I don't want people to see some of the things. I don't want people to know about some of the hidden sins. And so the real me, so the real me doesn't show up. I hide things. I pretend. And the problem is that in doing that, it doesn't just affect me. In fact, if you go back a couple of verses to Romans 12, verse 5, Paul reminds us that we are members of one another. So it's just like if your back is hurting, it affects your whole body. All the members of your body are hurting because that one member is hurting. The same is true when I hide some of these things in my life. It doesn't just affect me. It affects the whole body. It affects everything. And so we wear masks, and we pretend, and relationships are superficial, and we don't love each other as Christ loved us, and we don't have the deep kind of unity that Christ has called us to. And the world doesn't see how precious and how valuable a relationship with Christ really, really is. In fact, it's kind of interesting here that the the phrases that uh, Paul uses, he talks about abhor what is evil. That's actually a very, very strong phrase. And whether in your translation of the Bible it says abhor what is evil or hate what is evil, it's 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 not a mild word. In fact, the best way perhaps to describe that word is with a picture, kind of a word picture. We probably all went on vacation at one time or another, and when we left on vacation, we left a a little bit of milk, you know, in the refrigerator. You know, there was this little bit left in the gallon, we left it in the refrigerator, we went on vacation for a week or maybe two weeks, and we come back home from vacation, and we get up the next morning, and, you know, we get out our Cheerios, and we're about ready to pour some milk on our Cheerios, and we kind of think, oh, you know, that milk has been in the refrigerator for two weeks. And so we open up the lid on the milk, and we stick our nose up to it, and we take a big, real whiff of that milk, and it's like, oh, that is putrid. You know, the milk has soured. That is the word that Paul uses here. So when he says, abhor what is evil, he's not saying that, uh, you know, just stay a little bit away from sin. He's saying that the way we view sin is, is the way we should kind of, our take on sin should be the same, that we have that take on that sour milk that we want to stay as far away from it as we can. We want to keep our distance from it. We really don't want to go anywhere near it. So the issue isn't how close we can come to sin. It's really how close to purity and righteousness we can be. We are to abhor what is evil. We're to distance ourselves from it. We're to avoid it. And we are to hold fast to what is good. And that little phrase, hold fast, is another interesting word. It actually comes from the word to glue. So he's saying we're to glue ourselves, we are to bind ourselves to what is good, to what is right and worthy. Why do we do that? We do that because a big part of genuine biblical community is modeling before each other and encouraging each other the doing of what is right, the doing of what is good, the doing of what is worthy and God-honoring. So we're to seek to model that in our relationships with each other and encourage that in our relationships with each other. We are to have love that is genuine, authentic, without wearing masks, 
and we're to abhor what is evil, but we are to hold fast to what is good. So if we're going to really experience genuine biblical community, then the real me needs to show up. And the real me can't show up unless the authentic me shows up. And the real me can't show up unless I'm willing to model and encourage in other followers of Christ purity in my life and purity in their lives. So genuine community occurs when the real me shows up. But there's a second ingredient for genuine community to occur, and that is that not only does the real me need to show up, but I need to be willing to meet real needs. I need to be willing to meet real needs. Now, let me just share with you just briefly a, a story of a, of a situation where real needs were met. When I was uh, uh, my first 10 years in ministry, I pastored a church in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. And um, uh, while pastoring there, we had a, a, a young mom, uh, a young wife mom, and her three kids began attending our church. And her name was Jean, and a wonderful lady, and three great kids, and they became part of our church family. And, uh, but, but, but her husband didn't come with her. He maybe came once or twice on a couple of occasions, but didn't come regularly. And over the course of time, we, in getting to know Jean and getting to know the family a little bit, we, we came to learn that her husband was an alcoholic. And uh, even though he was a very highly educated man, and he actually had a, a very high position in the administration of one of Cleveland's largest hospitals, uh, when he'd get drunk, he became a very violent man. He became very physically and very verbally kind of violent toward Gene and toward the kids. And uh, it was a situation that just, it just wasn't tolerable. It just couldn't continue. And so uh, you know, Gene was thinking, you know, what do we do as a family? You know, how, what, what steps do we take in this? And so kind of in conjunction with church leadership and in conjunction with Gene's counselor and in conjunction with Gene and her children, uh, they planned, Gene and the kids planned an intervention with her husband. And the idea was to confront her husband with all that, all that, what he was doing, all the impact that it was having upon their lives and their family. And so the day came for the intervention, and, and he came, and uh, uh, she basically just shared her heart with him. And in fact, tears were shed, and she just kind of poured out all her, her hurts and her fears and everything that had been going on and, and all that was brought into their family. And, and each one of the three kids also shared with their dad just all that was going on and all that the impact of his drinking and what was, was doing upon them as a family. And so they just kind of poured it out, and, and they were crying, and, and the, the counselor was crying, and I was crying, and, and, and at times even her husband was crying. And at the end of the intervention, the, the counselor said to the husband, he said, look, you got two options. We've made arrangements for you to enter, you know, inpatient, you know, uh, rehabilitation, inpatient treatment for your alcoholism. Said, so you have a choice. You can either choose to do that or your wife and your children, they're not coming home because this is not a situation that can be tolerated any longer. And so, you know, looking at this husband, you know, I thought to ourselves, you know, he's sober right now. And when he was sober, he was a thoughtful man. He was an intelligent man. We thought for sure that he'd make the right decision. We thought for sure that he'd make the right choice and choose his family over his, his own alcoholism, that he choose the, the inpatient treatment so that he could save his family. But unfortunately, he said no. In fact, even after all the tears that were shed and all the hard truth that was shared, he just stood up and walked out. He just walked out. We were so confident he'd make the right choice, but he didn't make the right choice. 
So we had made arrangements. If he made the wrong choice, we had made arrangements, kind of short-term arrangements for Gene and the kids where they would stay. But I think in our confidence that he'd make the right choice, we didn't make arrangements. We didn't figure out what would we do for the long term because they weren't going home. They were not going back to him. That was one thing that was for sure. And so all this was happening, and over the course of several days, you know, people in the church were praying about Gene and the kids and what to do and their housing situation and all of that. And uh, the church had bought a piece of property right next to the property that the church was on. And on that piece of property, there was a house. It was a nice house, a three-bedroom house and a couple of bathrooms and kitchen and all the stuff that normal houses come with. And basically, uh, since that property had been bought, we had turned that house over to the young people of the church and said, look, this is the youth house. You use it in ways that you see fit and use it with your leadership and all of that. And so they kind of had a place of their own and they loved that house and they used it uh, several days a week for all kinds of events and activities and different things that they did. And so those young people were praying about this situation and the young people came to the leadership of uh, the student ministry leadership and they said, you know, we've got this house. Why don't we move Gene and the kids into the house? We're willing to give up part of the house. We're willing to change the way we use the house. We'll make the sacrifice. We'll do whatever we take. And so for the next year and a half, Jean and her three kids lived in the youth house. And they made a few sacrifices, and the young people made a few sacrifices. But real needs were met. Jean's real needs were met. Those kids, her kids, their real needs were met. So what is necessary to meet real needs? I mean, if genuine community is based upon the real me showing up and meeting real needs, then what is necessary to meet real needs? Well, again, two qualities are shared with us in verse 10. It says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. What are those two qualities? I think the first quality is devotion. If we're going to meet real needs and therefore experience genuine community, there needs to be an element of of devotion. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. It literally reads, love one another with Philadelphos. Love one another with Philadelphos. Philadelphos is the word from which we get our word Philadelphia. And we know that Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love. It's the city of family love. So Paul was saying that for genuine community to occur and for real needs to be met, We need to love each other with family affection. We need to love each other with family love. In other words, the same concern, the same protection, the same devotion that we would extend to our own children, that we would extend to our siblings, that we would extend to our parents, that we would extend to our our spouse, those kind of things. That same kind of devotion and concern and compassion, we are now called to extend to one another in the body of Christ. We are to love each other with a devoted love. We are to love each other with a family love, a brotherly love. And again, the early church, I mean, they they took this very seriously. I mean, back in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, uh, listen to this testimony of the early church. It says, and all those who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions And they were selling their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. 
In other words, they were treating each other as family. If you've got a need, we're going to meet that need. Just like I would the people, member, the members of my family, the people in my family, I'd do the same thing. A little bit later in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we read, now the number of those who believed were of one heart, of one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So loving each other with family affection, with brotherly affection, was the normal way that followers of Christ treated each other. It was the very definition of the early church. And you know, there are times when, you know, I have to ask myself, you know, has my, my faith in Christ and my participation in a church, has it become so kind of structured? Has it become sort of so routine and so sort of organized that even though maybe I go to church, but am I really being church? It seems like the early church, they didn't have that mixed up. They weren't about going to church, but they were very much about being church. They were about expressing genuine biblical community, and it's no wonder that so many people were coming to Christ day after day after day. But it's exactly what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus said, by this shall all people know that you're my followers, if you have love for one another. So if we're going to experience genuine community, and if we're going to meet real needs, then there needs to be a devotion, a family love family affection that we share with each other. But there's another ingredient here as well. If real needs are going to be met, not only do we need devotion, but we also need humility. We need humility. The verse says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. It literally reads, outdo one another in giving honor to another person. It's the idea of focusing on others rather than focusing on me. That's what genuine community looks like when it's played out in real life. You've heard Jamie share this. I've shared this before. Others have probably shared this as well. That when we think of humility, humility isn't thinking less of myself. In other words, the humble person isn't the person that thinks, you know, how bad they are or how low, low they are or how, you know, rotten they are. That's not genuine humility. Genuine humility is not thinking, it's not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. In other words, instead of focusing all my thought on myself, I focus my energies, my thoughts, I focus my resources on other people. In fact, the most profound picture of, of that, of humility, and of meeting real needs in the context of humility is really the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished at the cross. I mean, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He writes, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did Jesus do? He met real needs. He met our deepest need. He met our most important need. And the only way he could do that was through humility. He had to humble himself and not and focus less on himself and focus more on us and our needs. That's why he came into this world. That's why he went to the cross. It was all about our needs, saving us, rescuing us, forgiving us, you know, changing us. So again, here are some questions that, that you know, I, th- I think I need to ask myself. And those questions would be, what would it look like for me to really follow Christ? What would it look like for me to really follow his example? What are some of the real needs of people within my kind of relational network? Am I observing them? Am I aware of them? Am I focused on them? Or am I so focused on me and my needs and my schedule and all my stuff? Do I really focus on what those needs are? Am I aware of them? And then what initiative could I take? What initiative could we take to meet some of those real needs of people in our community, people in our church, people in our small group. You know, it's almost as if we need to say, God, am I willing to show the devotion, to show the family love, to show the humility that's necessary to meet a real need and therefore express and experience genuine biblical community? Because the truth is, you and I will never experience genuine biblical community, unless the real me shows up with authenticity and purity, and unless we meet real needs with devotion and humility. That's the only way it happens. So what's happening here? Well, if you look at the book of Romans, Romans 1 through 11 are all about understanding our faith. Romans 1 through 11 are all about learning about our faith and coming to grips with our faith. But here in chapter 12, it's no longer about understanding our faith. It's about living our faith, living our faith. And so as we've kind of been working our way through this chapter on the Sundays when I've been able to speak, we learned in chapter one about giving God what he wants most. That's part of living our faith, giving God what he wants most, about surrendering to his lordship. We've learned from verse two that that if we're going to get God's best for our life, what it takes to experience his good and acceptable and perfect will. We've talked about the questions, you know, who am I and where do I fit in and why am I here? And we've come to learn from chapter 12 that in Christ we have a new identity. We're eternally valuable, that we're part of his family, part of the body of Christ, and we're unconditionally secure and accepted in that situation. We've learned that God has shaped us for his purposes to accomplish the good works that he's prepared for us so we're uniquely significant. But you know, here, here in verses 9 to 13, Paul tells us, God tells us that we just can't do it alone. We can't live our faith by ourselves. It was always designed to be done in community. It was always done to be, designed to be done in relationships with each other. And on the night before Jesus died, the thing he said was this to his disciples, love each other like I've loved you. 
That's how the world's going to know that you're my followers. And when he prayed to God the Father, he said, look, I'm not just praying for these immediate followers. I'm praying for the followers that are going to come after them. They need to have a deep unity. That's the only way the world's ever going to see why you sent me and why these people have believed in me. So God calls us to experience genuine biblical community. And that happens when the real me meets real needs. We do it with authenticity. We need to do it with purity. We need to do it with devotion. And we need to do it with humility. So this week, as we launch out into our schedules, launch out into our responsibilities, this week, as our small groups gather, or we, we spend time with other followers of Jesus Christ, maybe one-on-one or in other, in other ways, let's think about this. Let's think about how we can build into those times that we're together relationships that demonstrate these qualities of the real me meeting real needs. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we, we thank you this morning for um, these truths from your word. Father, we thank you for what, uh, what Paul is reminding us of here in Romans chapter 12, that it goes beyond just understanding our faith and learning about our faith. It's really about living our faith. And Lord, these issues of experiencing genuine biblical community are, are, are so, so central to living that faith, so central to being salt and light in our world. So Father, help us as your people in our relationships with each other uh, to show up the real people show up, authentic people, people that are wanting to model and encourage each other, uh, abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. Father, help us as we see needs around us to seek to want to meet those needs with devotion and humility, to loving each other with a family affection and outdoing one another in showing honor to each other. So, Father, we just... Um, we pray that it, that it would be our experience as a church body, our experience as individuals within this church body, within our small groups, that we would come to experience these things. And then in so doing, people would know, know that we're followers of Jesus Christ, know why you sent Christ into this world, and so that we would be salt and light in our world as you called us to be. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.